we don't need to ship and pray anymore. We have data, uh, we have technology, we have really fantastic financial products like insurance that can help manage those risks. Well, we've covered a lot of topics across the last 122 podcasts, including to talking to founders about building their businesses, the importance of speed to market, the role of the Lloyd's Lab here in the UK, about finding distribution partners and the global nature of insurance business generally. We've also had businesses providing sensors, parametric insurance, marine analytics, and we've touched on the role of government and backstops to support the uninsurable. But I think this is the first time that I've spoken to anyone from a company that has experience in all of these areas, despite being less than four years old. Well, Matthew Grant here, partner at Instec London, lover of data, analytics and innovation, and your host for the Instec London podcast. And yet again, we packed a whole lot into this discussion and there's so much to cover, frankly, we had to. Ben Hubbard is the co-founder of Parcel and CEO, and he has got a fascinating background, somebody else who didn't start his career in insurance, by the way. And he's built a business that is going to be making life a whole lot better for all of us this year. And by the way, thank you to all of you who've been contacting me from around the world to say how much you like these discussions. It really helps keep us sane in these wintry, locked up days. Uh, Good to know that life exists outside my front door. And frankly, it really helps us show the value to our corporate members without whom we couldn't be doing this. Now, you're going to hear from Ben in a minute, but first of all, I asked Ed Gaze, who runs the Lloyd's Lab, what it was about Parcel that he thought had appealed to the people that selected the company to be in the lab's first cohort. There are a few reasons why Parcel got selected to join the first cohort of the Lloyd's Lab. The first thing is their passion. The passion for the products really shone through. Uh, I said the second thing was around the fact that they built their own hardware and software, the IoT device, Internet of Things device they built. Um, captured everything that was needed. And the third thing I think was, was a matter of timing and, and, and the fact that the people in the room from the insurers who were voting saw an opportunity and, uh, and thought that's something they could work with. Well, you're going to hear more about how Parcel ended up joining the Lloyd's Lab later on. But for now, here's my discussion with Ben. Ben, great to have you joining us uh, today. Really, really fascinating background. I'm so looking forward to hearing about Parcel. It's uh, such a timely discussion and really great to be talking to somebody that is really making a success and a business out of the use of IoT. Now, you've had a fascinating background as well. You looks like you've worked for global development organizations. You've been in government. You're a part of USAID. Uh, now, I think you're based in Denver, Colorado uh, and set up Parcel in 2017. Well, you know, welcome. Is it Matt or Matthew? Uh, Matthew normally, but I, I always quite like being called okay. Matt. So um, no, no, I'll call you. It's very American of me to call you Matt. <laughs> great to be with you. Good, good morning, good afternoon, and uh, pleased to be here with you. Well, it's great. Now I've heard about you right from the first cohort uh, in the Lloyd's Lab that you were on, and I, you know, arguably one of the most successful ones. I think you came out of that with a number of people already lined up to go and, and support you in the business. Is that right? Yeah, and it's um. A, Lloyd's Lab is a, was a great opportunity for us. We're um, we're really pleased to be part of the first cohort, and um, and it was really useful to our company. I mean, we'll I probably talk a little bit about our evolution, but um, that really helped kind of solidify our focus on insurance and develop some of the key relationships that we needed to get to where we are uh, today. And you know, we continue to have a great relationship with Lloyd's. 
So you've got some breaking news just now or some things that are very relevant to the whole COVID vaccine distribution. Can you just give us a quick update on that, first of all, and then we'll really interested in learning more about the company. Yeah, no, we're really pleased. Uh, right before the holiday, we launched the Global Health Risk Facility, uh, which is a really unique alliance um, between you know, public and private sectors, technology, insurance industry, which is making a really critical insurance coverage uh, available and affordable for COVID-19 distributions uh, to the entire world um, and, and really all vaccines and global health commodities. So we're really pumped to have done this um, with Lloyd's, uh, with the industry. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to, to talking more about that with you today. Ben, one of the things that comes through these discussions is there's so many people out there who started really fascinating businesses, but haven't come out of insurance as a career. And uh, those of us who've been in insurance for a lot of our lives are really encouraged by people coming into it. So what was it that took you out of, I'm sure, what was a really interesting role uh, in government and in USA and actually motivated you to start Parcel? Yeah, well, it's been an interesting journey. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I've spent most of my career, you know, really focused on issues of extreme poverty um, and different aspects of it, you know, advocacy, uh, policy, financing, and and really, you know, how do we help countries and communities and individuals um, give them the tools to lift themselves out of poverty? So, you, you know, um, across doing all that work in different organizations, including in government, as you mentioned, with the Obama administration uh, at USAID, which is the U.S. government's uh, development agency, you end up dealing with supply chains, and you know those those are there's supply chains around emergency situations. So it's getting food aid um, to countries, you know, to address famine or materials um, to to help rebuild after natural disasters or or, or civil wars. Um, uh, but but really, it, a lot of it comes down to delivering essential uh, public health services. And probably the most acute example is delivering vaccines and you know, getting a cold chain vaccine to someone in a last mile community is really difficult. Wondering what a cold chain vaccine is? Well, me too, but hang in there. Ben explains that in a few minutes. I just started to see, uh, you know, some some really interesting opportunity um, for impact where we could use some of these amazing soaring innovations we're seeing in, in technology and the internet of things and apply it towards these persistent problems uh, of getting essential life-saving products to people around the world. And um, and a lot of the possibilities, you know, in terms of public and private partnerships um, to make those solutions available to half the world's population that lives in countries uh, that we'd consider to have very weak supply chains that makes delivering things like vaccines very difficult. Uh, it was actually early in my career I was living in Kenya working for the Clinton Foundation. I was importing HIV AIDS treatments and um, someone kind of shared this sort of cynical term of art called ship and pray uh, in response to my asking about how we can understand the quality in the supply chain. And uh, it's a phrase that's kind of been repeated at different points in my career. And so I use that as kind of way of focusing on, on what's important here, which is we don't need to ship and pray anymore. Um, we have data, uh, we have technology, um, we have really fantastic uh, financial products like insurance um, that can help manage those risks. Just for those who aren't familiar with Parcel and in just in terms of what you're actually offering today, can you just talk a bit about what it is you're providing and what problem you're solving? 
Yeah, you know, Parcels, um, we're both a technology company uh, and a cargo insurer at this point. And so we have a solution that allows um, customers to monitor and insure their sensitive cargo, typically temperature sensitive perishables, um, as it's being stored and shipped around the world. We can do those separately or together. Um, so we provide our monitoring and kind of risk management solutions to companies just looking to, to monitor and improve their cold chain. Um, that's everything from some life science pharma products to, uh, to seafood uh, and food products. Uh, but then we can offer insurance on top of that. And the data we collect using our sensors allows us to get a granular understanding of, of those risks uh, and then provide better insurance coverage uh, and new insurance products uh, to manage some of the unique risks that that uh, perishable shippers face. And that term cold chain, I, I can kind of guess what it is, but it might be better if you described it rather than me try, try to describe it and get it wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny because it's become headline news uh, recently with, with COVID-19, but it's really, it's keeping things cold from start to finish, you know, from manufacturer to consumer. And in the case of vaccines, I think as the world is now learning, those vaccines need to be kept cold. It's a perilous journey, you know, across different chains of custody, dozens of hands as it makes its way to a patient. And it's one of these products when it comes to vaccines and cold chain that there's really little margin for error. I mean, you need really near perfection in delivery for the vaccine to be potent when it gets to the patient. You know, there's not a safety issue, but the vaccine won't work, right? And so in this case, you know, where we're trying to get everyone inoculated, trying to get to herd immunity, we want to make sure that the vaccines that are getting to people are potent and, and working. So it just requires some some pretty sophisticated logistics. It requires data, uh, and and we're bringing the data. Um, that's what we do: bring the data and then bring the insurance cover behind it. Excellent. And actually, talking about headlines, you actually are featuring on uh, a CNN being interviewed live. So we'll put that link in the episode notes. But you know, you had quite a nice profile on that. I think it was four or five minutes talking exactly about this. I guess you are also part of the news yourselves these days. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, position to be in. You know, we've we've been kind of quietly working away, um, but but there's a lot of interest in um, in cold chains and vaccine delivery. NBC Nightly News has covered this uh, repeatedly um, since the spring, and uh, and so happy to be here to help educate people because it's really important that everyone understand that truly a case uh, anywhere is a threat everywhere. And we do need to vaccinate the planet and we do need to invest in distribution as seriously as we have in development of vaccines. And, you know, where you live shouldn't determine whether you get a vaccine, but unless we're serious about distribution, it could determine whether a vaccine works. That was a great comment you had. So just make sure I got this right. So a, a case anywhere is a threat everywhere. Did I catch that correctly? Yeah, and that's because you know this is a pandemic, and that pan prefix means that the virus is everywhere, and you know we'll continue to have resurgence of the virus, and and unless we can squelch it everywhere, um, that's just one of the, the the things about a pandemic. And so, you know, we're all rightly focused on vaccinating our communities and our countries and the U.S. and the U.K., but we really need to be paying attention. To, to other countries, particularly these poorer countries um, that have weaker supply chains, that have fewer means to procure the vaccines, that, are, that can't cut these big bilateral deals with Pfizer and 
Moderna um, and making sure that they're getting allocation too. There's actually an interesting study. Um, I, I can't remember who did it. I think it was may have been the Gates Foundation looking at what a kind of sort of, a, I'll, I'll paraphrase this, the selfish approach of everyone's just kind of every, every person for themselves versus a collaborative, equitable distribution approach. And the number of deaths averted taking a more collaborative approach is significant. So we actually all benefit from working together on this uh, and not kind of making our own way. Yeah, interesting. It's sort of the reverse of the, the tragedy of commons of each person going out for their own short-term benefit. But I just want to come back. You, you mentioned earlier on, you've got both the technology and the insurance. So I, I want to just kind of tackle the insurance bit first and then come back to the technology because really intrigued by how that works. But you also on the insurance side, I mean, you've gone further than most organizations have. So you've got, actually got a syndicate at Lloyd's themselves. So I guess for those that don't understand the implication of that, it means you've got actually got the authority to underwrite with your own capital or at least dedicated capital behind you. But could you just talk a bit more about who's supporting you on that and, and the benefits of actually having being structured as a syndicate versus uh, maybe a more traditional MGA approach? We have a, a few different insurance capabilities, but um, uh, we have a, a MGA or a cover holder and we do an, an offer something we call cold cover, which is our perishables focused product um, focused on the US uh, in the UK. And that is actually done as an MGA. Um, and we have some markets behind those products. And that includes a, a really innovative parametric product um, that, that we, I'm sure we'll probably talk a little bit about. And then we also have a, a syndicate. And this is what we just launched in, in December, 2020. And um, the syndicate, uh, Syndicate 1796 is focused on these global health product distributions, vaccines, COVID vaccines being the kind of paramount product that we want to support immediately. Okay, well, I was going to hit pause here for a moment, because for those not intimately familiar with Lloyd's and the London market, this can start to sound a bit technical. So first of all, what is an MGA? Well, an MGA or Managing General Agent sometimes referred to as a managing general underwriter in the US or MGU, or also known as a cover holder in the UK, is an entity that enables organisations like Parcel to act both as a broker, but with the ability to underwrite using third-party capital. Now, MGAs have become very popular with insurtech startups and scale-ups. And if you want to learn more about them, then I wrote an article explaining what MGAs are on LinkedIn back in April 2019, proved quite popular. And you can find it on my profile, Matthew Grant, in LinkedIn, or just Google Matthew Grant and MGAs. And then secondly, Ben used the term markets just now, and that's a term used in Lloyd's and also London more generally to describe the syndicates and the London market insurance companies, which are insurance companies able to operate under Lloyd's license or more generally with a license to provide capacity to companies like Parcel. So what Ben is saying is that Parcel is backed by a number of insurance companies providing them with capital to underwrite. Now, the dedicated syndicate that Ben's about to talk about is really rather special. He goes on to explain a little bit more. Syndicate 1796 is named after uh, the year 1796 when actually it was a British physician, Edward Jenner, began experiments on what would become uh, a smallpox vaccine, which is, well, it was the kind of dawn of, of vaccinology um, and, and is actually the only vaccine 
um, that has completely er completely eradicated a virus. So um, some real inspiration there. But that that syndicate is entirely focused on global health and life science product distribution. So treatments, equipment, therapies, uh, diagnostics, vaccines, PPE going to developing countries around the world. So it includes, you know, 150 odd countries. It's a fairly large in scope, um, but that's the focus of that syndicate. It's backed by uh, the U.S. government via uh, an agency called the Development Finance Corporation, which is significant because it's the first time actually, I think, I think um, this is a, actually the first time a government's invested into Lloyd's uh, with capital. Uh, and in that syndicate is taking half the risk um, with the market on those distributions. Interesting. So that's that's the global health risk facility. Is that right? Which is is that is that a separate product that you're offering? Yeah. Um, it, right. So Syndicate 1796, together with those uh, other markets, of which there's uh, nine uh, Lloyd's markets, we have another five reinsurers involved. Comprises the global health risk facility, um, and uh, again, that's focused on global health. For me, having been involved in, in different kind of public-private partnerships and risk-sharing arrangements, the Lloyd's Marketplace and where John Neal is taking it, it's kind of a playground um, in terms of possibility. We use this new syndicate in a box mechanism. Uh, it's just a really great example of, um, I think, of this the, this new future of Lloyd's and Blueprint, too. Yeah, I mean, it's a great testament to the, the success of the Lloyd's lab and you know, Trevor Maynard and Ed Gaze, what they're doing in the lab and you know, the syndicate in the box is that's the reason people do incubation. And uh, yeah, so it's really good to see it coming all the way to some some product. And and then just, uh, Ben, just make sure I understood when you're talking about the funding from, I think it's the US International Development Finance Corp, which is that's backed by the US government. Is, is, that, is that actually risk capital they're putting up or is it investment capital in building the business? It's risk capital, so it's it's underwriting capital. Um, so it, it's it's sitting at Lloyd's, uh, and you know, it's funds at Lloyd's and backing the um, the risks that we underwrite. Is that part of what their remit is? Is to put capital in? It's just really interesting to to look at situations where governments are funding or you know, sort of supporting new ventures and supporting insurers with with risk capital, which you know, traditionally they've been uncomfortable doing. There are some others like Global Parametrics that have that are doing the same thing. But it, so is this, was this innovative for them as well, or are they already doing this just in different areas? So it is innovative for them. Um, as one of their investment staff told me it's one of the most innovative deals they've done. Um, but, you know, their uh, development finance corporation, we call them DFC, um, there's going to be a lot of acronyms here, but um, they are what uh, are called a development finance institution or a development bank. So most G7 countries have a development finance institution. In the UK, you have the um, UK Commonwealth Development Corporation, the CDC. And these are kind of government-backed investment vehicles that are meant to support social and economic development in developing countries. So they have a range of products. They can support private equity funds, you know, support bank lending, SMEs, and that's their mandate. And they invest for, for profit. I mean, they invest uh, on commercial terms, um, but with this mission in mind. So this was a sort of happy meeting uh, between what we were trying to accomplish with this facility and how uh, the U.S. Development Finance Corporation wants to use their capital. It's the first time they've been involved in an insurance product like this, certainly the first time they've worked with Lloyd's. 
but I think it's an interesting model. And I think part of what resonates here and might be a lesson for the broader insurance industry is this you know, concept of risk sharing with the government. And I think what part of what makes this work is that uh, we had lead market syndicates step up and say, look, we're willing to put capital at risk. Um, we're willing to put time and effort into this. And we're willing to take half of the risk here with you government, you know, via syndicate 1796. There's something nice about 50-50 kind of pari passu risk sharing uh, in that everyone's equally aligned around getting the job done. And it sends a, a pretty strong message to governments. Um, so I think as we think about government kind of public-private partnerships and some of these other dimensions, I think it's important that the insurance industry step up and say, look, we're willing to kind of put our capital at risk alongside you. It just sends a, a different kind of message. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and this, you know, this large insurance protection gap that you know, most people are aware of these days, it's, it's a great way of finding a partial solution or a solution to that, but with partial involvement from insurance. I think the other side of it that people don't always appreciate is that you know, just through the insurance mechanism and the distribution and the claims handling process, the, there's actually an infrastructure in place to to handle the payout. So it's not you know not like trying to create a whole different separate way of supporting with aid payout. It actually already exists and is piggybacking on something that's there. So I, yeah, I can see us doing you know potentially doing a lot more on that across lots of different areas. But we have congratulations on on the innovation there as well. Hi, Holly here. I'm just jumping in here to let you know a bit more about how we support our corporate members at Instech London. We've been delighted that Ben and his team at Parcel have joined us recently as corporate members. And so I'd like to take this chance to let you know a bit more about what that means. I'm Instech London's corporate member manager, and I'm responsible for making sure we stay in regular contact with our 100 or so members located around the world, helping them share their stories across 2000 or so people in our network. We help create content for our members, such as this podcast, and myself, along with Matthew and Robin and the rest of the team, are on hand for advice and introductions. If you like what we're doing and are interested in finding out more about how we might be able to help you, whether you're from insurance or technology, then please drop us an email at hello at instech.london or contact me, Holly Miller, via LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Now back to Matthew and Ben. I just want to come to to cold cover. So you touched on it earlier on. So cold cover is your your parametric insurance product. Is that right? Yeah. So cold cover encompasses uh, a couple of different things. It includes kind of more traditional transit and uh, stock throughput policies that you'd see in the cargo market, but it also includes some temperature specific peril coverage. And we have a deductible buyback product um, that we actually utilize a lot. Parametric, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with parametric products, but we're basically using the sensor um, uh, that's included in an insured shipment to drive you know, the payout and the indemnity. Um, so we, we mandate on, on those products, a um, certain number of devices, um, sensors included in, in the consignment define a, a trigger, which is really based on the uh, quality standards of that product. And the sensor does the work. And then we're able to provide a, a very streamlined, fast payment uh, with no adjustment process. And we really think that's part of the future of you know, where cargo insurance is going, particularly for these uh, temperature-sensitive products. And so is the parametric cover you're offering, is that a, to make sure I understand this correctly, is that a, a sort of a, in addition to existing insurance, or is that a stand, is, can that also be a standalone product that is, relies entirely on the parametric index? 
Um, it can be both. Uh, t- typically, so far, you know, people tend to pair it with a traditional all-risk policy, but it's used a lot, oftentimes, to supplement. And, and part of the reason is we provide just better coverage through this. So, you know, in addition to getting paid faster and not dealing with a long adjustment process, your goods are covered against the actual conditions that they experience. And you can only do that because of the sensor. So traditionally, uh, in a marine cargo policy, you know, you're relying on some type of objective source to judge whether a peril has been triggered. And so when it comes to temperature, that has been um, these uh, mechanical or reefer breakdown clauses. So, you know, say, look, if there's been a mechanical failure um, for 12 hours continuous or 24 hours continuous, that's what we'll need to, to activate a, you know, a temperature claim. Um, and, you know, for a vast majority of products, um, uh, those those 12 and 24 hour continuous breakdown clauses don't really help the customer um, because their products have been destroyed well before that. So being able to measure exactly what's happening to their product against what that specific product can withstand gives them coverage for what they're shipping. Um, and isn't this kind of uh, uh, one size fits all coverage and, you know, through cold cover, and I can say this unequivocally, we can provide the very best temperature coverage for perishables in the insurance market. And we can only do that because, uh, we have these sensors and we built policies and process around, um, serving, you know, serving up an insurance policy linked to the sensors. Yeah. And it seems like it's a good example where you've got a very high correlation between, an event happening in this case, uh, the, I presume the temperature rising and and therefore you know, effectively destruction of the property. So very little little basis risk. Uh, so I can see why that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's in the past or maybe even today still, there are challenges challenges with getting sensors to be uh, dependable, robust, and actually then capturing the information. So can you just talk a bit about how does it actually work in, in practice? So presumably there is a some kind of well, there will be some kind of containers how the pharmaceuticals are being tracked. Where does the sensor actually sit? Is it on the package or is it within the cargo container? Each case is a little bit different, but um, but generally the, the sensors are really um, placed as close to the product as possible. So we're attaching sensors, you know, at, at the very least to, you know, a pallet, um, ideally down into individual boxes. We're at a price point that we can do that affordably for customers we tend to take a risk-based approach. So we're looking at their claims experience. We're looking at the risk we understand about different shipping routes, product you know, sensitivity, and that drives a risk management plan um, in terms of what shipments are going to monitor with how many sensors. When it comes to parametric, because that uh, payment is triggered entirely by the sensor, um, we, uh, we do mandate uh, sensors on any um, shipment, obviously, that we're going to ensure. Typically, that's a minimum of three per consignment, um, and uh, and then two out of three registering a, of an event um, triggers a payment. How you capture the data? Is it you trying to capture it in real time, or does that not really matter? It, you can pick it up when it actually goes into port, and then and then download the data, and you don't need to get it real time. Yeah, there's different ways we get the data. Um, it's typically at the end of the journey. Uh, it's offloaded with a phone. Um, we have gateways. Um, that do it automatically, or in some cases we're using real-time devices. So it's, it's beamed up to the cloud via cellular 
Um, but either way, it hits our back end and then our algorithms can, uh, you know, can determine um, based on those commodities what the uh, impact on the product has been. And, and then what about just someone doing that? So I guess it's two questions here. So one is you know, who owns the sensors and, and do you then have to go and retrieve the sensors or, or reuse them? And then presumably somebody needs to have some kind of knowledge to be able to know how to upload that data when the when the product arrives at its destination. And presumably they, they only, that's only really an issue if you've got a payout. I mean, if everything's fine, you don't need to upload the data or do you also capture the data just for general tracking purposes? Yeah, well, we want we always want the data because we want to learn from good shipments and bad shipments. Um, and right now, most people, the data really never really goes anywhere. Um, it's actually thrown away. Um, it's important to understand if you're shipping a temperature sensitive product, you're likely using a data logger of some kind. Um, and these are usually people select the cheapest, simplest ones you can. And they are both of those things. Oftentimes they're just measuring some type of cumulative exposure and then giving you a sort of thumbs up or down or a happy face or sad face. Um, But if it's actually logging data, then you have to retrieve it, offload it. You get a CSV file or PDF, which is difficult to work with. So the data is not really getting up to the cloud. So with our kind of platform, we're making it really easy for the, for both to sort of source a very low cost, simple to use, easy to understand sensor um, and then architected the system in a way that that data uh, can can be uh, moved up to the cloud and shared and analyzed and integrated um, and combined with other data sets. So, you know, we have a really robust mobile platform. You can just scan a QR code, data goes up. Uh, as I mentioned, we also have gateways. These are just little router-sized devices that install in warehouses. They're listening for those devices when they arrive. Uh, and they automatically offload the data once they they are detected. Um, and then we have partnerships um, with a couple other IoT companies. So one thing that's unique about us, we make you know our own devices, but we also partner with others um, because again, we're interested in the data. We're interested in using that data to provide insurance coverage, um, and so we can work with other devices uh, and systems to get that data through our uh, integration platform. So one way or another, that data is making its way up to the cloud, but we're leveraging real, you know, existing processes and behaviors around how these goods are already monitored and, and really just improving them and making it easier and more affordable. Well, that point's really interesting actually about you've got the sensors or the, or the sensor readers rather, or the gateways, you're automatically reading it and deploying it. I mean, it's a whole sort of automated smart contract the less human intervention is obviously the more or the faster and the more reliable ultimately you're going to get the data. And I think also capturing that data for where there's not a loss, it makes a huge amount of sense. That's one of the challenges in the traditional insurance market is they get, they get the lost data for claims, but it can be difficult to compare that to what didn't have a loss. And so it's kind of difficult to know how bad or not bad that event was. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense capturing the data. And I think also, to your earlier point, it helps with pricing going forward because that's often the challenge with parametric products when they're new is you don't really have the data to price against. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think what's interesting about, you know, traditional insurance has the component that payments are determined by an actual loss or damage. And that's the prolonged time that, you know, accompanies adjustment and verifying the loss. Um, and, you know, I think most of your listeners know parametric insurance is different that the payment's triggered by, an event exceeding some type of measurable threshold, you know, it could be an earthquake of a certain magnitude. Um, I think what's different about parcels parametric temperature product is that we have 
really combine the best of both of those things. We make a fast parametric payment based on a, a trigger event, but because we're measuring the actual experience, you know, the actual temperature of the commodity, we're almost certain to know that there's been a real loss or damage to that product. Um, and, and since we know the value of the commodity, that payment is also directly correlated to the pure loss and not just a lump sum. So slight nuance in, in terms of how that works, but I think advantageous to the client and to the insurer. How often do these devices, not, not your sensors, but the actual refrigeration devices fail and, need, and a payout needs to get made? It depends on the strength of, of the supply chain, uh, the age of the equipment. And so it really varies. We see really bad to really good, um, and and a lot of it does come down to to the age of the cold chain equipment. Um, you know, outdated refrigerators. You know, they break down um, and 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 are faulty and can lead to real spoilage. Um, and so we do see a strong correlation between age, make, model, and we track those things um, and kind of scorecard different cold chain equipment. But it really does vary. And at the end of the day, it's important to remember we're dealing with humans, so doors get left open, <laughs> uh, vaccine boxes get left out. And, you know, anytime a vaccine moves, whether it's in and out of a refrigerator, um, or it's from, you know, one depot to another, there, the risk to it increases. And so one thing we've learned from our data and insights amongst many things though, is speed matters. So you want to, the faster that product moves through the supply chain, particularly once it gets to what we would call the last mile. So maybe, you know, to the to the pharmacy, to the to the distribution site, the faster that moves, the lower the risk to spoilage. Um, it can, you know, you can see spoilage reduced by as much as half, depending on the speed at which that product's uh, moving through. Well, that point you mentioned in passing there about you know, tracking equipment, I guess tracking's um, the people who are actually moving the goods around. I guess the classic example of sort of data exhaust that you can actually turn into a product because presumably if you're not already doing it at some point. There's value in that data for people that are choosing who they who they ship with or what equipment they install or even just checking out which equipment their shippers have got, presumably. Yeah, there's been some exciting innovations in cold chain in terms of the equipment. So, you know, there's now solar powered refrigerators. A lot of people ask me, like, how can you distribute a cold chain vaccine in countries that don't have very good power? Um, there is technology to, to be able to do that. It takes some, some real investment um, in organizations like Gavi. Uh, and the WHO and UNICEF um, have been, have invested in in making that technology available. The other part is the value we want to deliver immediately is to those frontline healthcare workers. So they're the ones who have to determine whether a child is going to get a vaccine or someone's going to get a, a COVID vaccine. They want to know it's good, and so they need a really quick, easy way to understand some type of actual insight. Is this vaccine okay? And that's what we tee up for frontline workers. It's why. We have a lot of traction with users and healthcare workers because it just makes their life easier. Um, but then we're using obviously some of the some of that data exhaust, right? Some of that other data, some of the raw data, to be able to do some of those um, deeper insights that can help reduce future risk, that can help design better cover, design better products. So, so on that last point about the, the health workers knowing the vaccines okay, is there a dashboard or is it something they can check based on the consignment number and, and just validate the temperature hasn't been too high when it's gone through the cold chain? Yeah, we try to keep it really simple. Um, so, you know, on, on the physical device, you know, there's very clear kind of colored light rings, you know, red, <laughs> um, they flash, they have audible alarms, um, green, it's okay. Uh, and so depending on the, the kind of how the device has been configured in the business logic, um, it will alert them 
just on a physical device. Um, scanning on the phone kind of lets them go another level deeper. And, you know, we're just kind of bringing modern uh, user interfaces and design, um, you know, that you would be accustomed to in your kind of favorite mobile app. Um, and that just makes things easier. And if there is a breach, they're kind of guided through um, steps to take. Um, they can log the actions that they took. In addition to sensor data, you're now started getting frontline intelligence around, well, what, what's the human telling us that they think caused this temperature event? Uh, what did they do about it? And it just becomes yet another source of data to, um, to make improvements. And presumably there's a challenge or you have to now collect the sensors and then put them back into the supply chain. So that's a whole other level of the business, is it, of, of collecting those and circulate, recirculating them? Well, they're single use. So um, you, we don't collect them. We help people recycle them <laughs> um, and uh, actually have a kind of pretty neat system for collecting them and, and kind of bringing them back to some of our depots to be recycled. When it comes to temperature sensing, we have a really, um, really slick kind of single-use, low-cost device. It's the size of a domino. It's actually thinner than a domino if you're thinking about the form factor. Um, and, uh, and, and it lasts for 100 days, and, um, and there's no reverse logistics. Oh, fascinating. Uh, and then you mentioned earlier on speed. Uh, yeah, just turning that around to what you've been doing with the parcel. I mean, you've moved incredibly fast. How have you built and scaled the company and, and learned about an entirely different area of the business? I'm one of many people at Parcel. I have two incredible co-founders who do come out of relevant industries um, in technology. Uh, Alex uh, was a product manager at, at Google and Zest Finance, which does a lot of underwriting, uh, machine learning underwriting for, for credit. Uh, Mike came out of supply chain technology background. The three of us really have built this company together, leveraging what we're each good at. Um, and then, you know, we've built a, a nearly 40-strong person team that is just incredible and is drawn to parcel because of the mission uh, of what we're trying to do. And, and our mission is still front and center for us. It's attracted great people, both as employees, it's attracted great partners uh, in terms of, of people who've kind of helped us along the way, whether it's Lloyd's mentors or Lloyd's itself or investors. And, you know, one thing you learn building a company is <laughs> you need everybody, the founders and whatnot get glorified, but it's such a team sport. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just happy to be part of this team that we've built. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it is really impressive. And there's definitely an element of you know, speed equals success, uh, I think, in, in many, in many businesses. Uh, and then just more, more generally, Ben, we were delighted to have your support as Instead London. Uh, you know, it's just great to be working with organizations like you. I think it's just so helpful, you know, both for the perspective of insurance organizations trying to figure out how to bring innovation into their own organizations, you know, how to know to partner with people, but also people looking at building businesses. But you know, at, at this stage in your growth now, uh, you know, for anybody listening, you know, what, what are you looking for that can help you grow the business or your organizations you want to partner with or have as clients? Talent is always the thing that's most critical um, to building a company. Um, we're always interested in talent, you know, love people who kind of bring some background in insurance um, but also kind of understand technology and product. Um, and, you know, I think we'll likely be kind of having a larger presence in London uh, in the coming year. But obviously, you know, Denver is not necessarily an insure tech hub, but there's a few of us out here. Um, and so Instech is is great network for us, just as we do sit in Denver, but operate uh, so heavily um, in the London insurance market. And so, um, 
so it's great to have those tentacles kind of into that community. And, you know, we're excited to, to be a bigger part of your community. We just joined at the end of the last year and excited to, to get to know the other members. Well, quite a few of our members these days are actually from your part of the world. Not this, I don't know if anybody specifically in, uh, in Denver, but certainly uh, in, the, in the US East Coast and, and West Coast. Um, so yeah, great to hear expanding into the UK and you know, also a lot of people listening in from, from the US as well. So uh, yeah, I think with what you're doing uh, and our reach, you look out for people contacting you because I'm sure there'll be you know, a lot of talent out there. And actually the organization that's really making an impact is you know, it's, it's so fantastic. So uh, that's, that's been great. And yeah, thank you for your support as well. It's, it's tremendous you know, to have that support as we build out the business. Well, thanks so much, Matthew. I've really enjoyed the conversation. That wasn't quite the end of the conversation. Once we'd wrapped up what you've just heard, I had the tape still running. And remember how I asked Ed Gaze at the beginning about why he thought Parcel was selected for the Lloyds Lab? Well, I also asked Ben a similar question. How did they come across the Lloyds Lab themselves? One of our advisors just sent me a note saying like, FYI, <laughs> like Lloyds is, has a accelerator thing they're launching. And then we got selected. And we kind of went into it with like pretty low expectations. You know, there's a lot of these things and like you're, you learn to be a little bit skeptical of them, but we got a ton in the end. We benefited massively. Yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations to Parcel. What a tremendous story. And we are delighted to have them as one of our corporate members. For all of you that have been helping us by telling everyone about the podcast please do keep spreading the word about what we're up to uh, whilst we are based in london over 50 percent of our listeners are outside of the uk today and 30 percent of our corporate members are from the us which probably reflects the overall distribution of our listeners as well we've members in continental europe and riask has just joined us as our most recent corporate member coming in from australia so please contact myself holly robin or any of the team at hello at instec.london to find out more about what we're doing or contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn. And if you can't wait until next Sunday to hear from us, you can, of course, sign up for our newsletter out every Wednesday morning, 7 a.m. UK time. It's the yellow sign-in box on the website, www.instec.london. 